following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw, for our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. We're going to carry on in Genesis, and we've been in these early chapters of the earliest book in the Bible. Uh, We're in the life of Abraham at the moment. Uh, the great founder of our faith in many ways and a really significant figure in the biblical story, looking at the promises God has made to him, these significant promises that really set the direction then for the rest of the biblical story. Uh, But we have also learned that Abraham is a man not without his flaws. As we looked at last week, and those of you that were here, um, Abraham made us feel all a little bit better about ourselves last week, didn't he? Just by his pretty abysmal behavior. So we all came away feeling better about our lives. Uh, so he's got his ups and downs, that's for sure. And today we're carrying on the journey in the, the roller coaster ride that is the life of Abraham. So Genesis 13 is where we're going to be, and Lou Reeves is going to come and read the passage for us. So thank you, Lou. So Abram went up from Egypt to the Negev with his wife and everything he had, and Lot went with him. Abram had become very wealthy in livestock and in silver and gold. From the Negev, he went from place to place until he came to Bethel, to the place between Bethel and Ai, where his tent had been earlier, and where he had first built an altar. There Abram called on the name of the Lord. Now Lot, who was moving about with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents. But the land could not support them while they stayed together, for their possessions were so great that they were not able to stay together. After quarrelling arose between Abram's herders and Lot's, the Canaanites... And sorry, and quarrelling arose between Abram's herders and Lot's. The Canaanites and Perizzites were also living in the land at that time. So Abram said to Lot, Let's not have any quarrelling between you and me, or between your herders and mine, for we are close relatives. Is not the whole land before you? Let's part company. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. If you go to the right, I'll go to the left. Lot looked around and saw that... The whole plain of the Jordan toward the Zohar was well watered, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself the whole plain of the Jordan and set out toward the east. The two men parted company. Abram lived in the land of Canaan, while Lot lived among the cities of the plain and pitched his tents near Sodom. Now the people of Sodom were wicked and were sinning greatly against the Lord. The Lord said to Abram after Lot had parted from him, Look around from where you are, to the north and south, to the east and west. All the land that you see I will give to you and your offspring forever. I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth, so that if anyone could count the dust, then your offspring could be counted. Go, walk the length and the breadth of the land, for I am giving it to you. So Abram went and lived to live near the great trees of Mamre at Hebron, where he pitched his tent. There he built an altar to the Lord. Thanks, Lou. All right, we're going to have a quick video clip to start things off this morning. This is from the movie Meet the Parents, which is going back a little way now. Quite a funny movie about this this, uh, relationship and tension between a father-in-law, Jack, played by Robert De Niro, and the son-in-law, Greg, played by Ben Stiller. And Jack is deliberating as to whether to bring Greg into the circle of trust. So let's watch the screen. (laughs) All right, that's a bit of fun. That's a pretty funny movie. Kind of makes you want to watch the rest of it, doesn't it? 
So I, I think maybe part of the reason we find that kind of thing funny is because it gets us thinking about our own little family dramas that we have. You know, like we may not have anything that dramatic, but we've all got stuff, right? You've all got stuff in your family. I've got stuff in my family. We've all got little family issues going on in our immediate family or our extended family, and stuff like that gets us thinking about it, gets us laughing about it, at least maybe helps us not take ourselves too seriously. Is that right? Just helps us kind of laugh at ourselves and our problems sometimes and the various family disputes that we've got. And uh, this is true of every family, right? Every family's got its issues. Every family's got its problems. This has been true of every family down through the ages in every part of the world right through history. And this is true in the Bible as well, right? Every family in Scripture has also got its own little issues, including Abraham's family. And we're starting to see some of the issues in Abraham's family. Abraham's actually got his share of family problems. There's quite a few of them. I mean, we saw one last week, right? That was a bit of a marriage problem with Abraham and Sarah, right? That was, that was quite a biggie. Uh, and then this week, we see another family problem that starts to emerge in Abraham's family, and that's between him and Lot. So this is not a father-in-law, son-in-law situation. This is an uncle and nephew situation that's starting to cause some, some conflict now in Abraham's family. So in Genesis 13, you start to see the emergence of this character Lot coming into the foreground, Abraham's nephew. And he's been quite a background figure until now. Most of the action so far is focused on Abraham and Sarah as a couple. Lot has kind of been in the background. But now we see Lot emerging as more of a significant figure in the story. And Lot is Abraham's nephew. Uh, he's already lost his dad. So further back in the story, uh, Lot's father has passed away. Uh, we don't know a lot about his mum, so he's basically orphaned at this stage. And so Abraham kind of takes Lot under his wing and becomes like a father figure to him, uh, folds him into the family and takes care of him and takes Lot wherever they go. So Lot's kind of tagging along with Abraham on his travels. So Lot was with Abraham in the story we looked at last week. When they went to Egypt, Lot was there. He got a front row seat to that whole debacle. So he learned how not to do marriage. And then, now Lot, as we pick up the action in chapter 13, Lot is with Abraham and Sarah coming back out of Egypt and back on their way to the promised land. And so there's this whole entourage traveling back to Canaan. There's Abraham and Sarah and Lot, all of their possessions. They've accumulated all this stuff while they were in Egypt, all this gold and silver, uh, all their servants. They've got male and female servants, and they've got a lot of cattle. A whole lot of sheep and goats and cows and so on, and that kind of becomes part of the problem in this story. So you can imagine this huge big entourage, this huge caravan, so to speak, coming through the, the desert, back on their way to Canaan. Abraham and Sarah and Lot, they were actually fairly well off at this stage. They're doing quite well. They've got a whole lot of stuff. So they arrive then back in the land of Canaan, back in the land of promise, back in the land that God had promised to give Abraham and his family. And they settle down kind of in the middle of the land. Uh, we're told between Bethel and, and Ai, sort of in the middle of the, the promised land there, and they, they settle down and start just making life for themselves again. And then this problem starts to emerge between Abraham and Lot because they both own all these flocks. They've got all these all this cattle, and you've only got limited land. So in the space where they decide to settle, whatever that, that region is, You've got limited natural resources there. And so there's not enough clean drinking water for all the cattle to drink. And there's not enough good pasture land for all of the cattle 
to eat and graze on. And the land can't sustain all of them while they're all in the same place. There's just a scarcity of natural resources. And so there's this arguing that begins between the people that are overseeing Lot's flocks and the people overseeing Abraham's flocks. Their herdsmen start arguing. They're arguing over whose cattle is going to have access to what drinking water at what time and and which cattle are going to have this pasture land and how they're going to rotate their flocks and who's going to have access to what and whose turn it is over here and whose cattle's in who else's way and all of that. They start arguing. They start quarreling with one another and this whole conflict starts escalating. It's starting to get out of hand. There's the, the people are just these two big factions within the family. And the added problem of this, as the text tells us, is that the author makes a point of telling us in verse 7 that, by the way, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were also living in the land. And I think that's quite strategic because you have these other hostile people groups not too far away. They were the ones who were already in the land. They're the ones who were not too keen on anyone else being in the land with them. So if you've got Abraham and Lot's uh, flocks and then their herdsmen all fighting with each other. They're making themselves vulnerable to attack. They're making it easy for another people group, another army, to come in, swoop in, and, and pick them off because there's all this infighting going on over here. So I think Abraham has the intuition to realize the problem and see that this is not a good situation, this is, this is not a sustainable situation, and this is making them vulnerable. And so he calls Lot over one day calls him over for a bit of a chat. And he says to him in verse 8, let's not have any quarreling between you and me or between your herders and mine, for we are close relatives. Is not the whole land before you? Let's part company. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. If you go to the right, I'll go to the left. Now just think for a minute about what Abraham's doing here. Abraham has got a lot of things going for him at this point. He's the older of the two. He's certainly the more senior family member, so he would, by rights, have had first pick of the land. Secondly, he's the richer of the two. He just has more wealth and possessions because of everything he's accumulated in Egypt. So again, by rights, he should have had first pick of the land. Thirdly, and most importantly, God promised Abraham this land. So Abraham has this land by divine gift from God, and God promised him the whole land. And who did God promise the land to, by the way? To Abraham and his offspring. Is Lot one of Abraham's offspring? No, not directly. And so Lot doesn't even by divine right have a share in this land. It's Abraham's land. It's given to him by God. The whole thing is his. He doesn't have to give Lot any of it. And yet, Abraham lays his interests aside. He lays his rights aside. He lays his own prerogative aside and his sense of entitlement aside And he freely says to Lot, you choose where you want to go. If you go left, I will then go right. If you go right, I I will go left. I will fit around you. He didn't have to say that. He could quite easily have insisted on where he wanted to go. But he lays down his rights and he gives Lot first choice. This is a stunningly selfless act. This is an incredibly selfless act. And it's even more incredible when you think about Abraham last week, or in the last passage that we read. Abraham, back in Egypt, acted in a way that was unbelievably selfish. And yet here he is, acting in this way that is incredibly selfless in giving Lot first choice of the land. We'll come back to that. 
So let's finish the story. Abraham says this to Lot, and then verse 10, Lot looked around and saw that the whole plain of the Jordan towards Zoar was well watered, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself the whole plain of the Jordan and set out towards the east. The two men parted company. So Lot looks across the Jordan River from where they were, and he sees this area of land that was just beautiful. Just this lush paradise. It's got fresh water. It's got limitless pasture land for his flocks. It just looks like the kind of place that he could see himself settling down and having a good life. And he says to Abraham, that's the place I want to be. Now, what Lot should have done is deferred to Abraham. What Lot should have done is to say, no, Abraham, you, you, you are the elder, you are the, the more significant family member, and God's given you this land. You choose. But Lot doesn't do that. Lot's learned to be a taker. Lot's watched Abraham enough back in Egypt to know how to be selfish. And he's learned how to behave to get what he wants. And so now it's his turn, and he's going to take the first opportunity he gets. So he says, yeah, I'll have that land. Thanks very much. Now, what, what Lot doesn't realize at this point, or maybe he does realize and he, he doesn't care, is two things. One is that this land is outside the land of Canaan. This land that Lot wants, it's actually outside the promised land. So he's choosing a part of the land that's not even part of this, this area that God has, has gifted and blessed Abraham with. And secondly, he doesn't know at this stage that where he's wanting to settle is dangerously close to these two cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And these are two of the most wicked cities that we ever read about in Scripture, just filled with depraved, corrupted, twisted, perverted people. And that is going to cause problem after problem after problem for Lot and his family. If you read the following few chapters, it, this becomes a nightmare for Lot. And it becomes a nightmare for Abraham because he's got to deal with it. But this becomes really, really problematic for Lot being in this area because he's so close to such massive wickedness and depravity. He doesn't realize that that's, that's all coming down the track and that this is where he's going to be. He just looks at this land and he thinks, this is, this is like the Garden of Eden. It's like this beautiful paradise. And he doesn't realize how close to danger and tragedy he is. John Calvin has a great quote here about Lot. He says, Lot, when he fancied he was living in paradise, was nearly plunged into the depths of hell. That's well worded. And that's the problem. As Lot's just uh, got this vision of what he thinks is going to be wonderful for him and his family, he doesn't realize this is going to turn out to be a tragedy. But anyway, Lot takes his, his flocks and his servants, his possessions across the Jordan, and he settles on the far side of the Jordan, outside of Canaan, in this land that he wants to be in. And Abraham then ends up just living in Canaan. And he stays in the promised land. And even though he's given up his first choice of the land, things actually work out really well for him because God shows up again and affirms the blessing to Abraham and affirms the promise of land. In verse 15, God says, All the land that you see, I will give to you and your offspring forever. I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth, so that if anyone could count the dust, then your offspring could be counted. And so you have this interesting scene at the end of the story where Lot goes for his first choice, first pick, wants what he wants and, and goes for it. And yet he ends up outside the land of Canaan. He ends up outside of the blessing, outside of the promise, outside of the action of the whole rest of the story. And Abraham, who's given up his first choice, who's given up his rights, who's given up his prerogative, he ends up getting the whole thing back and more. He ends up being in the land of Canaan and having it to himself and to his offspring and having God reaffirm these promises and make this covenant with him. He ends up in a pretty good position. 
So if you step back from the story now and you think about the story in connection with the story that we looked at last week, because I think these stories are supposed to be read together. This is where I've been this week, is just looking at these stories together. Genesis 12, and this incredibly selfish act of Abraham in Egypt. And then Genesis 13, this incredibly selfless act. And trying to figure out, how does one man change so much? You know, and, and the two stories, in some ways, there's, they're, so, they're so similar. You know, in, in chapter 12, there's a shortage of food for his family. And that leads Abraham to do the selfish deed of trying to pass his wife off as his sister. And then in Genesis 13, again, a shortage of food, this time for the animals. And you expect Abraham to act the same kind of way, but this time he acts totally selflessly. He's so concerned for Lot. He's so worried about Lot's well-being. He's totally tuned in to the needs of the other person and not just his own needs. And, and I've wrestled with this of trying to figure out how is one man so capable of such incredible selfishness and then such incredible selflessness. And then I realized, that's all of us, isn't it? I mean, this is every one of us. We're all Abraham in Genesis 12 and Genesis 13. It's every single one of us. We, we can surprise ourselves, I think, with how unbelievably selfish we can be. At I know I can. I mean, we know we're bad people, but sometimes we can just act in ways where we surprise ourselves with how stupid and utterly self-absorbed we are. And then there's other times we can surprise ourselves with how selfless we can be. Is that right? And, and sometimes we do things that surprise ourselves, and we can suddenly be incredibly generous people and altruistic people, very compassionate, beyond what we sort of think we naturally are. And we almost catch ourselves off guard with these virtuous qualities that occasionally pop out in our lives. We can be both people. You know, some days I'm Abraham... In Genesis 13, most days I'm Abraham of Genesis 12. But that's where we all live, isn't that right? And we are all these up and down people. We're all a total mixed bag of good and bad, selfishness and selflessness. And so maybe it's not that surprising that Abraham's capable of both. But I think there is a clue in the text as to why it is that Abraham acts so selflessly in this chapter as opposed to where he's been in chapter 12. I think the author is giving us a little clue here if you look closely at the text. Have another look at chapter 13. At the beginning of the story, before the action really heats up, you have this scene where Abraham comes into Canaan, and in verse 4, he, he comes back to Bethel where he's built an altar. And an altar is a place of worship. It's a place where people went, they made these altars in order to worship God, remember him. And we read at the end of verse 4, there Abraham called on the name of the Lord. So he worships God. He prays to God. He invokes God's name. And then at the end of the same chapter, at the end of chapter 13, verse 18, so Abraham went to live near the great trees of Mamre at Hebron, where he pitched his tents. There he built an altar to the Lord. And so again, Abraham builds this altar. And again, he worships. And so you have this idea that at the beginning of the story, Abraham worships God. And then at the end of the story, Abraham's worshipping God. The story begins and ends with worship. Abraham's worshipping at Bethel, and then he's worshipping at Hebron. The story is just full of Abraham in this place of worshipping God. And it's even more significant, I think, because in chapter 12, there's none of that. You look earlier, in the story we looked at last week of Abraham in Egypt, there's no, there's no altars. 
There's no worshiping God. There's no calling upon the name of the Lord. There's no invoking God's name. There's no inquiring of God. There's nothing. Abraham seems totally disconnected from God. And so it's significant, I think, that when Abraham is worshiping God, when he's connected to God, when he's in tune with God, it seems to spill over into his actions and his behavior. And he seems that much more selfless and concerned about other people. But when Abraham's not worshiping God, when he's out of step with God, and he's not connected, his heart not connected with God's heart, his behavior just turns inward. He becomes self-absorbed, self-focused, self-obsessed. He's not thinking about anyone else, including his own wife. He's just thinking about himself. Now that I think we can learn from. Because it's easy for us, isn't it, just to think purely at the level of actions. And we just think, how can I be a more selfless person and a less selfish person? person. And that's good as far as it goes. Yes, God does want us to be more selfless. Yes, God does want us to be concerned for others. But you've got to appreciate your actions don't just come from nowhere. Your actions don't just exist in a vacuum. Our actions as Christians are connected to who we are, and they are connected to our relationship with God. When we are worshiping God, like Abraham did, when we are calling on his name, when we are praying, when we are seeking God, when we are connected to Him and walking with Him, that is going to be far more natural for our lives to be orientated towards other people and for our character to reflect the character of the God that we're worshiping. When we're disconnected from God, when we're not walking with Him, we're not tuned into Him, and our hearts are not connected to His heart, our behavior naturally is going to turn inward. It's going to turn into ourselves and we're going to stop noticing others. We're going to stop being tuned into the needs of others. We're going to be stop being concerned for others. It's just going to be all about us. There is this connection between our actions, our outward life, and our worship of God. I'll give you an analogy. Uh, Lawson, our middle boy, he has a yellow ukulele. And he loves that ukulele. Plays it all day long. And uh, recently Anna tuned the ukulele for him, so it actually sounded reasonable. And he's got a few chords now, so he can strum away. And um, Anna, or I, mostly Anna, will play some, some stuff on the piano, and he'll be playing away. And, you know, you can get a bit of a groove going. Uh, the other day, I was outside doing some work, and Lawson was out there, not helping me, but just playing his ukulele. And so this, the guy that we know from down the road walked past, and he stopped and started chatting to us. And he asked if he could have a turn on Lawson's ukulele. So he took this yellow ukulele, and he started playing it, and then he started tuning it. At least I thought that he was tuning it. Turns out he was untuning it. He was just tight. I think he, he, I don't know whether he thought he knew what he was doing or was just trying to be impressive, but he just was tightening the strings more and more until eventually one of them snapped. So then we got a broken string on this ukulele, which was kind of an awkward moment. Um, and so now we've got an out-of-tune ukulele with a broken string. So even though Lawson's still playing the same chords, it just sounds bad. And we were saying to each other yesterday, we've got to tune this ukulele. We've got to get this thing restrung now so it actually sounds decent again. It's just not sounding any good. But that's the thing, isn't it? You can, have, you can be playing all the right chords, but if that ukulele is out of tune or got a broken string, it doesn't sound any good. Isn't that the same with our lives? If you're out of tune with God at a deep level, if you're just out of, out of step with Him, if you're disconnected from God at a, at a heart level, you can be trying to do the right things. You can be trying to do good actions. 
But your character is ultimately not going to reflect the character of God. This is not going to be a natural thing. The music of your life is not really going to sound that good because at a deep level, you're out of tune. It's only when we're in tune with God that then when we're playing the right chords, the music of our lives actually sounds to, starts to sound like something, something good. So what this brings us back to is really the priority of worship. That's really the difference that, that I came to between Abraham and Genesis 12 and Abraham and Genesis 13 is that in this chapter, Abraham's worshiping. He is connected to God, and that seems to make all the difference in the world to how he actually lives. It's then the natural overflow of his life to be much more concerned about his nephew than his own needs because he is grounded in worshiping God and calling upon his name. It brings us back to the priority of worship in our lives. And I would say, I don't know about you, I would say worship is, is always important, but maybe all the more important in this day and age when we are so conditioned by our culture to be self-centered people. We are so utterly conditioned by social media and so on to be utterly self-centered, self-absorbed people. This is why, one of the reasons why, we need to be worshipers because it gets us off ourselves, right? Let me show you a picture. Uh, this is a selfie that caused quite a bit of controversy a few years ago. I don't know whether you've seen this. This is a uh, teenage girl from Arizona who has the Twitter handle Princess Brianna, which is probably not a good start. And so here she is in the Auschwitz concentration camp. And on that particular trip, she took this selfie where she's smiling away to the camera. She's got an earbud in her ear. So she's just on her own, you know, got her own musical soundtrack going on. And she's got the, the, the tagline there, selfie in the Auschwitz concentration camp with a nice smiling emoji as well with a slightly blushing face. And when she put that online, there was just a huge storm of controversy because people felt like she was totally disconnected from her surroundings. Just in her own world, doing it like, as if she was a tourist on some beach of a Pacific island, rather than realizing the gravity of the place where she was and the horror of this place and how many people had lost their lives in this place. Um, but as all the, the criticism started to pour in, she just tweeted out some comment about, hey, now I'm famous, and seemed to relish the attention. And I think for many people... This symbolizes, I don't want to be too hard on her personally, but it symbolizes the reality that we are living in this selfie culture where we are so concerned with who we are, our little world, our interests, our issues, what's going on with me. We really struggle to get outside our own bubble sometimes. And this is a context in which worship is so important for our soul because it gets our focus just off me. Half the time, we, we can't see anything beyond the end of our nose. We're just so self-absorbed. But worship gets me focusing on someone else, namely God, the God who created me. Let me read you a quote by Craig Detweiler. He says, Worshipping God and taking selfies do not go together. Now, he's not saying you can't take selfies, I don't think. He's just saying worship is something different. Worship keeps our egos in check. When we bow down before God, we regain our perspective regarding who is the center of the universe and the source of our sustenance. We cease striving in order to focus on gratitude. We stop cultivating long enough to give thanks. We remember that we have not made ourselves. This is what we need to recognize. This is what worship does for our soul, is to get our focus off ourselves so that we focus on the Lord God, the maker of heaven and earth, and not on me 
for a while so that we focus on the Lord Jesus Christ and who he is and not on me. We focus on the one who has been truly selfless. That's who Jesus is. Jesus embodies all the qualities of Abraham in this story and more. Jesus was the truly selfless one. And we recognize that in worship, that it's not about my great deeds and how selfless I can be or how selfish I can be some days. It's about who Jesus was. We see in Genesis 13, I think, a little glimpse of who Jesus was, that consistently through his life, Jesus was selfless, totally tuned into the needs of others, totally tuned into the Father. And he didn't have all the ups and downs that we do. He didn't have all the sort of good days and bad days and highs and lows. He did emotionally, but not in terms of selfishness, selflessness. He was consistently selfless. And in worship, we see that the ultimate demonstration of that was on the cross when Jesus laid down his life for the sake of others. Maybe we get a little glimpse of that with Abraham, who gave up his right to the land for the sake of Lot and then got it all back again. And Jesus gives, gives up his life. He lays down his own life and he gets it all back again. He gets everything back again, becomes Lord of heaven and earth. Jesus is the truly selfless one. In, in worship, when we worship, we focus on him. We put our attention on him and not on ourselves. And we recognize that my identity is in him. It's not in me. It's not in my selfishness or my selflessness. It's ultimately in what Christ has done for me. That's my identity. And the more that you ground your identity in that, the more that your identity comes from the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, the more time you spend worshiping Father, Son, and Spirit, focusing your heart and mind there, the more that is going to have a natural overflow in your life. Because it's going to shift something in your heart. It's going to focus you not just on your issues and yourself and my this and I've got this going on and here's my problems and here's what I want in my life. It's going to shift something in your heart to recognize there is one who is so much infinitely greater than I am. There is one to whom I will one day give an account, one who holds all things in his hands, one who holds my life and my future and my family in his hands. And he is the one whom I need to be focusing on. When our focus is there, when our heart is there, it naturally spills over into a life that is a little more orientated towards other people because we've started by orientating ourselves towards God. That doesn't always mean it's going to be easy. I'm not going to tell you that if, if you worship God, you become a worshiper of Him and regularly have these practices of worship, that suddenly every decision you make, you're going to be pure and selfless. No, it's still going to be hard because we still have a sin nature, don't we? I mean, you still hit decision after decision where you, you still have a sinful nature and it's going to pull you towards selfishness every time. It doesn't matter how much you worship God. You still have that. You're going to have that until you die. You're going to have that until Jesus returns. So there will always be that pull of selflessness. But it is also true, the more you ground yourself in worship, and you know this from the times that you actually do it. I know this from the times that I do it. When I'm truly walking with God, when my heart is connected with Him, it is a little bit more natural, isn't it? To follow the promptings of the Holy Spirit, to be aware of others, tuned into the needs of others around me, a little less self-absorbed and a little more other interested. When you're walking with God, these things become a little more natural. They become the natural expression of our lives. They become the spiritual fruit that comes out of abiding deeply in God. So the story, I think, reminds us that regardless of whether we are Abraham on our most selfish days 
or whether we are Abraham on our most selfless days, God's love is absolutely consistent and he is absolutely faithful and nothing ever changes from God's perspective. But it also reminds us that the more we become worshippers like Abraham was in this chapter, the more that we commit ourselves to worship, the more selfless our lives are going to be. And those worship practices can look like a whole range of things. It's not just gathering together and singing songs on Sunday morning. That's one way of worshipping, but it's a whole range of things. It's taking the Lord's Supper, as we did a few minutes ago. It's, you know, Abraham built an altar to the Lord. We don't do that so much these days. We can do other things. We immerse ourselves in God's Word. It's a regular practice of being in Scripture. That's something that's going to get your focus off you for a while and onto God. How's that going in your life? Regularly coming back to God's Word. As we feed on the Word of God over time, it's going to have an impact in our lives. It can be something as simple as going for a long walk along a long beach. And choosing that time to tune our hearts back into the presence of God. How long has it been since you really connected at a heart level with God? Be honest with yourself. Are you just going through the motions and expecting to see transformation in your life? Or are you really willing to come back and say, God, it's been a while. It's been a while, but I don't want it to be any longer. I'm going to go for a long walk this afternoon, and I'm going to take the opportunity to connect my heart back with your heart and trust that that's the source of a transformed life. It can look like so many things, individually and coming together and sharing and communion and teaching and offering and worship. That's all part of it as well. But as we do these things regularly with our hearts in the right place, orientated towards God, over time, over time, we will see change. We will see transformation. We're going to still have all the ups and downs of Abraham, but we will see change in our life because our identity is grounded in the God who loves us unconditionally. I love the old hymn, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. We're going to sing it in just a minute. And particularly the last verse, which I think just keys right into what we've been talking about this morning. It says, O to grace, how great a debtor, daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart. O take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. It's a very honest hymn, isn't it? Prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. We all feel it, right? Every day we feel how wandering our hearts are, wandering off after this and that, just wandering after our own selfish desires. And this is saying to God, here's my heart, God. Take it, seal it, keep it, bind it to yourself so that I stay close to you and my life is transformed. May that be our prayer, individually, and as a church. Let's pray. Father God, you, you see into every one of our hearts now. And there's no fooling you. There's no trying to cover things up, God. You just see exactly where we are. And Even though we are experts at going through the motions and pretending like everything's okay on the outside, and even pretending that we can live fairly religious lives, God, you know the true condition of our heart. And as, as you search our hearts this morning, Lord, you know just how connected to you we really are, or how connected to you we aren't. Lord, you know where we're at. You know for some of us it's been a long time. And you know some, for some of us, Lord, it's, we're, we're a bit like Abraham, where it's been a long time since we've come to the altar to worship. It's been a long time since we've called upon your name. And we get disappointed and frustrated because we don't see progress in our lives, but we know, because you're reminding us, that we're not really at a deep level connecting with you, the source of life, 
and we're not really abiding in your presence. And so, Father, I pray this morning that you wouldn't lead us down a path of guilt because of that, and you wouldn't lead us just to be self-pitying, but that you'd draw us near to yourself and give us enough conviction to say, today, I'm coming back to the God who loves me. I'm coming back to him. I'm going to bind my heart again. I'm going to offer my heart again to you. Jesus, we give you our hearts. We ask that you would keep us close to you. Lord, make us worshippers like Abraham was a worshipper. Help us to stay near. Help us to stay in your word. Help us to be people of prayer, that we would abide in your presence. And that out of that abiding, you would bring about transformation and growth and selflessness in our lives. But may it be the fruit of a deepening relationship with you, Jesus. That's the desire of our hearts. That's the cry of our hearts. So would you come and make that a reality in each of our lives, we pray. For Christ's sake, for your glory, God, not ours. Amen. Amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources, or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.